So thank you all for letting me come and talk. Um, I am still struggling with a sinus infection, so I'm going to do my best not to snort into the mic. Um, but I'm not quick enough to hit the mute button each time I need to. Um, so a little bit about me uh, is, as Adam mentioned, we, we started going here quite a while ago. We took a, a break to plant a church, and, and now we're back. Um, so I gave my life to Christ when I was about 15 years old. Um, and the few years before that, I had struggled a little bit with some depression. It was kind of short-term and situational, um, kind of a typical teenage angsty period of my life. But when I came to Christ, God really took that away and, and, and wiped that out. And the next 20 years, it never, it never came back. And then a while ago, uh, some stuff came up, and I found myself back in that same position, struggling with that again. And what God did when he, when he spoke to me in that time really showed me a, a really beautiful thing and a really beautiful side of God um, that, that was a unique way of, of God speaking to me that I hadn't seen before. And so when Kurt asked if I would share something, that, that came to mind because I believe that it's really, really important if, if you're struggling with that, if you've, if you've been there, or if you are in that situation, I think God really wants to speak to you. And he wants you to know that he, he sees you and he hears you, and he hears that cry. And if that's something you haven't struggled with before, um, and it's really hard to say this and sound sincere, but I do mean it, I'm really happy. I'm really happy that you haven't struggled with that or that you don't struggle with that. But I think God even wants to take you another step, another step deeper in relationship with him through what he's shown me in this time. So I get the privilege of introducing my beautiful and wonderful wife, Amber, to, to pray for service this morning. So Amber, would you lift up service and another church? Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this wonderful man that I get to be married to, um, for the journey that you have taken him on and all that you have taught him about yourself. Uh, I thank you for putting him in a position to share what you have taught him so that other people can understand uh, more about you and who you are and how you are. Lord, so I lift up the sermon today. Uh, I lift up my husband. I lift up our congregation uh, to hear your words, to feel your heart. And I lift up all of the people from North Creek Church who are scattered abroad. Some have found homes, some have not. Lord, but I ask that you would bring those members of your body into communion and fellowship in the other, other locations and other congregations that you have prepared for them. Amen. Okay. So as Adam mentioned, uh, we started going to Lake Sam about 12 years ago. Uh, my wife and I had just gotten engaged. We were going to be living in Bellevue and wanted to be involved in a local church that was in our community. Um, we, we had been going here for a couple of years and, and absolutely loved it, uh, when all of a sudden I started having some health issues. At first, they didn't seem all that major. I kind of just thought I'm a little out of shape and could, could lose some weight and that type of stuff. But as time went on, they, they got worse and worse, and there was about five or six, I think, that all seemed unrelated, but eventually became pretty debilitating. Um, so I guess that's not the good, the bad. Um, and eventually I had to go into a doctor and I talked to a doctor because at this point I'm, I'm struggling. I'm struggling physically a great deal. And the doctor looked at all these symptoms and said, you know, I think they're all unrelated, but there's something I just kind of want to rule out. So I'm going to send you in for some tests and it's the big scary thing. You know, we're just going to try and roll that out. Well, about 15 minutes later, I got back and he's on the phone uh, looking very concerned. He was on the phone with a cardiologist, and uh, he mentioned, he told me that it looked like it was potentially heart failure, that it was potentially that kind of worst-case scenario of what he thought it could possibly be, and that this was a Monday afternoon, Wednesday morning, he had set up an appointment with me at a cardiologist. So I went to the cardiologist and found out that not only was it that worst case scenario, but it was worst case of the worst case scenario. 
So with heart failure, with, with, with heart health, they measure it in something called ejection fraction. So each time your heart pumps, it pumps a certain percentage of the blood out and is replenished with new blood. So the higher that percentage, the better. You're getting more circulation, more blood flow. Your heart's working as it should be. So normal people are at about a 60%, 55 to 60%. So each time the heart pumps, 60% of the blood's pumped out and replenished. Heart damage is typically anything 50 or under. Heart failure is usually at about 45. Usually at 30, people are on would qualify for disability with, with Medicare and, and the VA and that kind of stuff. Usually at 15, people are on the transplant list. I was diagnosed at five. So I was 28 years old. I uh, had a wife and 14-month-old son and was diagnosed with severe, as the, doctor, as the cardiologist said, raging heart failure. 5% uh, is a level where they don't want you to drive the mile to the hospital. They want to put you in an ambulance. They don't want you to drive home to tell your wife that you're probably going to die. They want you to call. So things were kind of rough. Um, but the amazing thing is God healed me. The cardiologist said, you're not going to get better. He sat my wife down and said, sorry, and said, I'm under the impression that you believe your husband's going to get better, and I need to tell you that he's not. I didn't expect to get this point at this point in the story. Um, so the amazing thing about having a, a praying and, and godly stubborn wife <laughs> is that she'll look the cardiologist in the eye and say, I don't believe you. Because God's going to heal him. And the cardiologist kind of says, oh, okay, whatever. Um, you know, I've been through eight years of med school and four more years of specialty, and, and you know, I'm, I'm top in my field and all that kind of stuff. But gradually that number climbed from 5 to 15%. And the cardiologist said, well, that's just a, it's just a matter of you had too much fluid in your system, and we got the fluid out, so your heart's able to pump with a little bit less resistance. It's, it's not going to get better. And it went from 15 to 20%. And he said, well... It's probably a rounding error, you know, it was, it was, it was probably, they measure in five, so it's probably at 17, and now it's 18, and that's within, you know, a, a, a measurement error, you know, with, within the, what do they call that, the standard deviation, whatever it would be called, she knows. Um, and then it went from 20 to 25. And he said, I, I don't know how to explain that. And it went from 25 to 35. And he said... That's amazing. It went from 35 to 45, and he said, and I quote, Merry Christmas. Um, so through this, God did a miracle, an absolute miracle, and healed me. I'm not supposed to be alive. Amen. And in that process, God was so incredibly faithful. We had two years where our income was $18,000 and $19,000 in this area. We had rent that was $1,350 a month and health insurance that was $500 a month. Are there any accountants here by any chance? Does that pencil out at all? No, of course not. And God's faithfulness through generosity of people in the church, generosity of family, and, and just numbers not making sense, math not adding up to pay the bills, it got done. And in that process, um, I went from a job that I absolutely hated to a job that I really like. I got into real estate because it was the only thing I could really do while going to the doctor four or five days a week and still try to start a, an income. And, and it was great, and I really, I really like it. And, and I started to have some success with it. Um, Amber went from a stay-at-home mom that was kind of going a little stir-crazy to working in a job that she, she loves, that she's able to do this amazing ministry in. So God took from that 5%, that low point, took and really put us on a good path. We, we ended up being able to pay off most all the debt that came and, and actually getting to where we bought a house. So we bought a, we bought a house in Bothell um, two years after being diagnosed with heart failure. God is good. God's amazing. And we got involved with a church plant that was really, really cool and in our, in our local community. We actually were even at a place where 
we were able to buy another house um, to, to make an offer and get that accepted on another house. And things were looking really amazing. And then I don't know if, you've, if you know in the, in the, it's kind of an iconic type of scene in an action movie where there's the, the hero is hanging on a rope off the edge of a cliff or bridge or, or building or something like that. And Arnold's up at the top, I'll pull you up. And they start pulling up the rope. And then all of a sudden the camera zooms in on the rope and there's this little ting. A little strand of the rope starts to break. And you know what's happening, that, that all of a sudden that rope's going to break and the hero's going to fall and, and there's this new wrinkle in it. Well, that first little ting was my sciatic nerve in my back. You see, we did something buying this new house that I tell all of my clients, don't do this. Don't do this. We made an offer on a house kind of out of the blue without having our current house ready to go on the market. We had five days per the contract to get our house on the market, and I, being somewhat of an optimist, maybe egotist, something, thought I can get it done in five days, right? I, I know how to do some construction type of stuff. I can, I can do that. Well, when on day two of those five days, you pinch a nerve in your back and are in excruciating pain, I couldn't get the house ready. So the house went on the market not ready, didn't get the money we needed, and long story short, the deal to buy this house that we absolutely believed was God leading us to do fell through. And we had, we had prayed about it. We felt good about it. We felt like this was going to be a great house for ministry. Um, you know, I love to cook and have people over for, for food, and we have right now a very small kitchen and not much dining space. This had a bigger kitchen and lots of room for people. It looked like it was a great fit, looked like it was God pointing us to, and it blew up. And at about that exact same time, the church plant that we were working with, that we really liked, that we had really poured a lot into, started to fall apart as well. And about that same time, I had three clients in quick succession drop out of the process of buying or selling, and, and some of it in kind of strange and a little hurtful ways. So finances started to blow up at the same time. And then it started to rain and rain and rain. And the sun came out, at, or it didn't come out, it got slightly less dark and gray at noon and was dark again by four. And I started to get depressed, really depressed. Things seemed to be going on this really great path, and then all of a sudden it got waylaid and flipped upside down. But I kept myself anchored in, in three things. One, I was a good husband. I was a good father, and I was respected in the community. But the thing about depression is when it takes every ounce of strength that you have to get out of bed, and every bit of what you are to keep yourself together, you don't have enough to pour into your wife. And when you've got a three and a seven-year-old that are amazing, and I love them, I love you, buddy, they're a lot of energy, and they take a lot of energy. And when I've got the energy, I absolutely love to spend time with my kids and pour into them, and it's great. But when you're struggling with that, pretty soon, you're not as good of a father. And when you're a realtor, and you, and you are known in your community for that, and, and that's what people want to talk to you about, and your house didn't sell. And every time you go out into the community, people say, oh, I, I saw your house was for sale. What's, what's going on? And you have to tell them that you did something dumb, and it blew up in your face. Pretty soon you don't feel all that respected in your community. It's a little bit like if you were a computer security expert and people knew that you were a computer security expert, and all of a sudden your email starts spamming them about Nigerian prince money scams. <laughs> so then one evening I was reading to my son Elijah the story of the prophet Elijah. I've always loved the story of the prophet Elijah. That's actually why I picked his name to be what it is, because he's, he's a rock star in the Old Testament. He's He's an, action, he's an action hero. 
And I started reading it to him, and God really showed me something. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of go through the story of Elijah. There's going to be a lot of big chunks of Scripture up on the screen. Please don't freak out. It reads like an action story. So um, I know sometimes when we see huge chunks of Scripture, we go, oh, geez, he's going to read that whole thing. Trust me, it's good. So, uh-oh, and I might have to turn around to see it because I, I made it too small of a font. So it says, so Elijah comes into play, and he's, he, he comes in when there's a series of really terrible kings. They're each getting more and more evil, and finally Ahab is the last in this line of kings, and he's especially evil. It says in, in the word that he, he did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than anyone that had come before him. What he did is he married a woman named Jezebel, who was uh, into the worship of Baal. And together they, they brought the worship of Baal into Israel. Uh, they started slaughtering the prophets of Israel. And, and I won't go into the details of what Baal worship entails, but it's nasty, nasty stuff. It's, it's really bad. Um, so he comes about, and it really doesn't even introduce him in the Bible other than to say, now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. So think about that. He's walked up to the king that wants him dead. He's a nobody. He walks up to the king and says, it's not going to rain in your kingdom until I say so. He's kicked a hornet's nest. This is a king that's slaughtering prophets. That's some stones. Goes on and, and he um, it goes on to say, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Now, I love camping. This sounds amazing. It's like camping without any of the work. He's got birds bringing him food. Awesome. Um, I've had birds steal my food when I was camping, but never bring it to me. And then from there, uh, he goes on. Um, God calls him to go and, and stay with a widow. And God says to ask the widow for food and water. So he does. And the widow says, all I've got left, and remember this is in the middle of a drought. It hasn't rained and it's the Middle East. She says, all I've got is a half handful of flour and a little bit of oil. I'm going to make a biscuit for me and my son and we're going to die. And he says, you're going to have food. If you feed me, you're going to have food until it rains. So she does. She's faithful. She steps out. She, she does that. And God provides, and the food never runs out. So all three of them are living in this house. The food never runs out. Eventually, the son dies. And so Elijah prays. And it says, The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord uh, the, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. From here, he goes back to Ahab. And it says, After a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Go and present yourself to Ahab, you know, the one that wants him dead, the one that's been looking for him as he's been hiding out with this widow. And I will send rain and tell him that I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Goes on to say, when he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab went, sent word throughout all of Israel and assembled the prophets at Mount Carmel. Before, Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two options? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. The people said nothing. Then 
Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and all call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, deal. <laughs> Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted, but there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. That's awesome. Um, shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought, which, by the way, is a euphemism for using the restroom. Um, uh, surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until blood flowed. Mid midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response no one answered. No one paid attention. Now, I grew up playing sports, and I was never very good. I wasn't really all that fast or coordinated. I was kind of big and strong, but the thing that I excelled at was trash talk. And I'll trash talk just about anybody. But 450 prophets with swords who want me dead? I'll pass on that one. I'll, I'll let that sleeping dog lie, right? Elijah's up there trash-talking them. He's mocking their God in front of 450 people who want him dead, who have weapons, and the king, and, and presumably some soldiers, because I doubt the king was just up there by himself. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. They came to him, and he reply, repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seas of seed, which is about 17 pounds of seed, um, FYI. He arranged the wood, cut the bowl into plate pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. And then... The fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. Whoa. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let any get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go, eat, and drink, for there is the sound of heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Mount Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Go look toward the sea, he told his servant, and he went up and looked. There's nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. The seventh time the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds, the wind rose, a heavy rain started falling, and Ahab read, rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came on Elijah. Tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. So by the way, that's about 17 miles. He outran the king's chariot because the Spirit of the Lord was on him. Again, not fast. Now, I don't mean to brag, though, but I did almost beat my three-year-old daughter in a 6K relay, uh, 6K for life with World Vision. Eli smoked me. Like, it's, 
he was he was done, had taken a nap, eaten some some dinner, gone and watched a movie by the time I finished. Um, so let's recap a little bit. Elijah has called for drought. He's been fed by ravens. He's seen food not run out. He's seen a boy raised from the dead. He's seen fire rain down from heaven and burn up water and sand and stone. He's nearly gotten flooded when he called for the rain to come back. And he's outrun a chariot for 17 miles. Now clearly, Elijah would never struggle with doubt again, right? He would never have any kind of a lack of trust after seeing all of that, right? Well, the thing is, Ahab went back and told his wife what happened on the mountain. And his wife sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Talking about one of the prophets of Baal. A big deal, right? I mean, Elijah's gone up to the king who wants him dead and told him there's not going to be rain. He's mocked 450 prophets who want him dead, who had swords. He's talked to the king again who wants him dead. This isn't a new thing. This isn't, this isn't some new revelation to him that, that the king's wife wants him dead. She's wanted him dead from day one. Then it says, Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. What? What? It goes on to say, all at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals in a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and he ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. And as I'm reading this with my son, as I'm, I'm in significant depression, I'm thinking, I, I feel this. I've worked my tail off at this church plant, and it's failed. I've moved forward on a house that I felt God was leading us to, and it blew up in my face. And I was thinking, but... I mean, Elijah, he's seen miracles. He's seen God spare his life from certain death. He's seen God provide when things looked completely bleak. How is he struggling with that? God's response to Elijah broke me in a beautiful way. Because you see, I had been holding on to what I felt were justified complaints that were, were things I had against God that I was angry about and frustrated with that, that made sense to be frustrated about, you know? We don't want to see a church community blow up. Who wants to see that? That's not, that's not a good thing. Who wants to move forward in something that, that they believe God is doing and have it, have it destroy them in a lot of ways? But God's response to Elijah is incredibly beautiful. It says, the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, 
but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, and he went out and he stood at the mouth of the cave. You see, Elijah had seen God's miracle. He had seen God's power. He had seen God crush enemies. He had seen God rain fire down from heaven. And he had seen things fail in his perspective. What he needed to hear was the gentle whisper of God, the, the intimate voice that God cared and that God loved him and that God knew the struggle that he was having completely and perfectly and intimately. It goes on to say, God asks him again, same question. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah's answer is the same. He says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. So God had, had fed Elijah. He had restored him physically. He fed him, and he had him take a nap. And I want to take a little, little pause aside from the sermon here. If you're struggling with depression and there's a physical cause, there's nothing unspiritually about, uh, unspiritual about fixing that. If you need to go see a doctor, absolutely. You can't out-spiritual God. God fed Elijah, and he had him take a nap. Amen? Um, so Elijah's concerns were still there. His reality was still, I'm the only one left. I don't know anybody else. He said, Ahab's still in charge. He's still killing prophets. This, the circumstances haven't changed. But then God spoke to him. So God asks him the question twice, and Elijah responds. God gives him that space to respond and, and air his grievances twice before he answers. So it said, Then the Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazel king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu son of Nishmi over Israel, and anoint Elisha son of Shaphat from Abel, Menaloah, so that guy from that place, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazel, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and his mouths have not kissed him. So God did three things with Elijah here. He restored his mission. Elijah had been serving God faithfully, diligently, and had seen it in his eyes fail. So God restores his mission. He gives him new kings to anoint and a new prophet to anoint. Now, the reality was still that Ahab was king. So think about that. Ahab is king. Ahab wants him dead, and God says, Ahab's not my king. You're appointing my king. Here's who they are. Go and do it. It wasn't just a checklist. It wasn't just something to, to do. This was, this was an, a mission that was overthrowing the reality of the world. So he restores his mission, and he restores Elijah's community. Elijah had been spending the last couple of years in the company of ravens, a widow and her son, and briefly a servant. Now God has put him in community where he's mentoring and shaping the next great prophet of Israel. He's spending time with kings and anointing them. Elijah has all of a sudden peers. And the third thing that God does with Elijah is he reminds them that there's still hope. He reminds them that God is still winning. God is still in control. There are 7,000 people that have not bowed down to Baal. Think about that. The king is going around killing anyone that won't. There's still 7,000 that have never done that. That's not a small miracle. That's huge. And as a prophet who spent his life with the goal of seeing people come to the Lord and seeing people reject idolatry, and he's, 
he's, uh, he's under the impression that he's the only one that hasn't done it, that his complete life has been a failure. For God to say, there are 7,000 that have listened. That's incredible. So as I'm looking at that, I start to realize that in my own life, God was restoring my mission. In a church plant, sometimes you have to wear a lot of hats because there's just not enough people to fill the gaps. So I have long known that my mission was to worship God with music and to dedicate that in, in, in ministry. And when you're in a church plant where you're leading worship, setting up, tearing down, running sound at the same time, which, by the way, doesn't work well. Like, not only is it hard, but it doesn't work well. Um, it becomes work. And there are seasons where that's okay, where we, we have to get stuff done. That's the reality. But when it becomes that that's what you're doing that for a long term, that's not, that's not good. That's not where God wants us. So coming back to like Sam, I was able to get plugged in on worship team and have some freedom to say I don't have to carry all that water. I can, I can sit back and play guitar or play bass and worship God. They even let me sing harmony sometimes, which, sorry. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I even started doing worship on my own at home and doing some recording. It's not anything that's ever going to get out, but it's, it's that still small voice of God speaking into my life through that worship and rebuilding me from the inside out. God restored our community. We had gone from seeing everyone around us kind of scatter and, and what we thought was our strong community not be that. Back to a place in Lake Sam where we walked in and people were excited. Huh, that feels good. And, and we had our friend, our children could, could play with the Hallett kids and, and run around and, and have community around us. Amber could go to the women's retreat and meet amazing women. I could be in a threefold and, and on worship team where we actually have a little bit of time now to, to get to know each other and be community. <laughs> and he reminded me that there's still hope, that he's still winning. Now, when things were still going pretty well, when I was getting the house ready to go on the market, uh, I was at Home Depot, and the checker, when I got up there, looked at me, and, and I, don't, I don't know why, but I, I guess he saw the spirit in me or something, and he said, I need you to pray for my wife. She was just, just diagnosed with leukemia. And I don't know what stage it was, and I, I did at the time. All I know is it was bad. It looked really bad, and he was scared. And I got to tell him about my heart and about how God healed me, and that I was going to pray, and I believed that God was going to heal his wife. And I left, and we, and we prayed, and Amber and I prayed together, and I kept praying, and I kept praying, and that was still when things were going well. Well, pretty soon things kind of dropped off for me. And I didn't see him again at Home Depot for quite a while. I kept praying, um, but the prayers went from that excited and eager and, and believing to, oh, geez, I hope she doesn't die. About four or five months later, as I'm, and I'm about the low point, I go back into Home Depot. I get in line, and I look up, and it's him. I hadn't seen him since. And my heart almost started to sink, because I just thought, I can't take a loss. I don't want to talk to him. What if his wife died, and I have to console him? I don't have anything left. But I knew I needed to. I needed to stay in that line, because at least he needed to hear that someone cared. I get up to the front of the line and asked him how his wife is doing. And he said, well, he started to cry. I thought, that's no good. And then he started to smile. And then he came out and he hugged me. And he said, my wife was cleared yesterday. Sorry. And the timing on that, think of that. I hadn't seen the guy for five months. I went into the Home Depot all the time. Our house is falling apart. We've got to do something about it. And so uh, 
I hadn't seen him in five months. I go back in the day after his wife was cleared. What a blessing that is. That God allowed me to see that he's still winning. He's still doing miracles. Even at that low point, he's still doing that. Then I got to thinking, you know, this is, this is probably January, February of last year that all this is going on as God's starting to rebuild me. And I look at the church and I, I go, man, the church kind of seems like we're in a cave too. We're not getting along, we're fighting. There's a lot of negative going on. There's, there's people leaving, there's people leaving the faith, there's all kinds of studies coming out talking about how numbers are terrible. And I believe that God wants to rebuild the church in the same way. So what does that look like? We need to be on a mission, both corporately to seeing people come to know the Lord and individually. And I believe that God has put in every one of us here a mission and a, and a desire to, to do something for him. And we need to seek and find that and pursue that hard. So if it's worship, worship God. Absolutely, give everything you've got. If it's providing food for single moms, do that at the absolute most that you can. <laughs> Sorry, I lost my place there. We also need to be in community. And that's hard. We live in a place that's not designed for it. The, the guy who spoke about the, the 20s group, was absolutely spot on. This is one of the hardest places to be in community. Even the architecture here is, is big bedrooms, small living rooms, big kitchens, small dining rooms. The houses aren't even set up to be in community. So it takes effort. It takes really working, but it is absolutely worth it. Absolutely worth it. I want to tell a little bit of a story about how God showed us community and how God changed our lives because of that. So when I was first diagnosed with heart failure, about a year later, so this is, this is finances are falling apart. We're still getting a good place spiritually, but life was pretty rough. Um, and Chris Maddox came up to us and said, there's a couple in the church that knows that you guys are, are struggling. And we said, uh-huh. And that you probably need a vacation. And we said, uh-huh. And you probably can't afford it. And we said, uh-huh. So they want to send you to Maui. This is an anonymous couple. I still don't know who these people are. Dang it. And let me tell you, when you have walked barefoot on the beach in Maui, knowing that God sent you there, there's nothing like that. That changes your outlook on grace. I had always felt that, that grace was a deal between me and God that I wasn't going to get the punishment that I deserved. I'll take it. Absolutely, every day. But grace is so much more than that. Dang. Grace is God feeding us a feast when we come back. And that trip to Maui changed generations. My children will grow up knowing about the goodness of God's grace in deeper and more powerful ways because of that. Now, I know that probably most of us can't afford to send someone to Maui. I want to get there. I really do. That's a financial goal of mine to be able to do something like that because it changed so dramatically, even just my outlook on what God wants for us. I've never been into the physical things, but to, to bless somebody like that is incredible. <laughs> to be blessed like that, we didn't, have, we didn't have money to pay rent at that point. We had just had to tell uh, our landlord, which is Amber's parents, that we weren't going to be able to pay rent the next month. It was hard for me to accept that, but I figured I could turn the heat off at home, save that money, and go to Maui. And you kind of have to say yes. So that's what community can be. That's the kind of change it can make to have someone step into your life or to step into someone's life that's hurting, that's going through something hard, 
take their hand in whatever way that you can and say, I'm here. So seek that out. It doesn't happen by accident. We're set up for it not to happen by accident. It has to be very intentional. And lastly, for the church, he wants to remind us that there's still hope and that he's still winning. I love that Chris Maddox got to come up and talk about what the church is doing. The church is doing amazing things and blessing the socks off of people. And it's kind of trendy to talk about all the bad that the church is doing. And there's bad things that are happening in the church, absolutely. But we're the body of Christ. When Christ does something good, when the body of Christ does something good, we're his hands and feet. We need to be excited about that. And we need to talk about that. We need to share the blessings that God has given us and not keep them a secret. So I want to talk about a couple of things that our church is doing. And, and there's a lot of churches in the area. There's a lot of churches in the country. There's a lot of churches in the world that are doing these same things that sometimes don't get seen. And I think it's awesome that they all got talked about right before I was going to come up. That's so cool. Um, so we've got missionaries in countries that we can't say the name of on a live stream for fear of retribution. Mm, that's not right. Not for fear. We don't fear that because we want all the opportunities to be open that can. <laughs> we have a missionary, Christina, in the Philippines that's working with, with kids with cancer. If that's not the hands and feet loving people, I don't know what is. We've got a, a recovery group that's seeing lives changed dramatically. If you've been to a baptism here in the last five years, you've seen people from the recovery group that are getting baptized and dedicating their lives to Christ and not stopping there. They're going out and changing the community. They're going out and bringing other people in. They're going and taking, taking meals to single moms. They're doing yard work. They're doing incredible things. It's, it's awesome. God is winning. God is still doing miracles. God is still providing. God is still in charge. He is still good, no matter what things look like. Amen? Absolutely. So I think we need to remember to be on mission. We need to remember to be in community. We need to remember that God is still winning. So to close, I want to pray a passage of Scripture. It's what Jesus said to John the Baptist when John the Baptist was going through some doubt. John the Baptist was locked in prison. He wasn't able to see what Jesus was doing and he started to lose a little bit of faith. He actually sent a messenger to say, are you still the one? Are you, are you the one or should I still be looking for the Messiah? And instead of ripping him up one side and down the other, which Jesus had every right to do, he had seen John the Baptist had been called and had seen that Jesus was God. Jesus responds to him from a passage in, in Isaiah 61 that's prophetic about the Messiah. And I want to pray this passage over the church because we are the body of Christ. So the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on us because he has anointed us to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent us to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the joy of oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. Instead of our shame, we will receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, we will, receive, we will rejoice in our inheritance. So we will inherit a double portion in our land, and everlasting joy will be ours. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> wow. Thank you, Isaac. Welcome. You guys, what in the world? Was that amazing? Oh, my heart feels overhauled. So we're going to stop now and take communion together. 
you know, when Jesus was in the garden just before he was arrested, um, he was in the Mount of Olives and he went to pray. This is in Luke 22. He withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You know, we always get a choice, don't we? My will or his will. Take the cup, don't take the cup. It seems to me we have a moment this morning to say, I'm going to take the cup. God's offering you a life, a path of trusting him, even in the midst of horror, of terror, right? That he is there. So I feel like he's saying to you, to me today, offering us a cup. I'll take your cup, God. We'll enter into his calling for us, yeah? Does that sound good? If you are ill or have a big um, mountain in your life that needs to be broken, we're going to take the cup with God's, with Jesus' body, which is broken for us, for our healing and our restoration. If you have something on your heart today that you want to lift to the Lord, hold that cup in your hand. We're going to pray together. Jesus, thank you for being broken to heal us. Oh, Yahweh, thank you for this plan. We take your cup. Thank you, God. And then he offers his blood to wash us clean. So even though we doubt, and even though we worry, and even though we make weird choices along the way, we get restored and set clean every day, every moment when we cry out to Him. So if you have something in your life that's holding you back from being able to walk with your head up into God's promises, into God's plan for you, take this cup. This is His blood given to you to wash you clean today. Oh God, we take your cup. We say yes. Thank you for washing us clean, setting us free. We say yes to you today.